0: to say something that I don't often get to say, but, uh, so grateful for the worship team tonight. Amen. <laughs> and, uh, so, uh, so grateful that, that, uh, ministry is in good hands and, um, and, and most importantly, that, uh, uh, you know, worship is, is, is always and will always be, um, a matter of the heart. And, uh, you know, I, I've learned that it doesn't matter how good or how bad a worship leader uh, is or talented, because I've I've been in services with the widest widest range of, of possibilities. Uh, the only thing that matters is a God's presence and be the the heart of the willingness of, of those that are there to worship them. And um, uh, and, and and so Anytime that I, I head into a place, the first thing that I have to check is myself. Um, whether I'm on a platform or I'm in a seat or wherever else that I am. Uh, but I'm just uh, especially grateful in knowing um, that here you have uh, willing and capable uh, hands and uh, voices and abilities. And, and, uh, and, I'm, and, I'm ex- and I'm excited for that. Uh, if you would open up, if you have your Bibles to Second Chronicles chapter 20. um Really, I'm just going to deal with one verse there. Uh, part, actually, part of one verse there, uh, verse 12. Uh, this might look a little bit different uh, in that regard, and how may normally uh, look at a passage of scripture, especially this passage of scripture, being that it's a narrative and there is a lot of backstory. And that there are a lot of things going on in this one particular story that is very powerful. But I'm going to leave that up to you to uh, read it and study it uh, and see what God would say to you through it. Amen? Because what I want to do tonight, and if if you're having a title or if you want to write a title down, you can write Secrets to Success. Secrets to Success. And what I want to do tonight um, is give you a glimpse into uh, how God has used this verse uh, in my life in this season of being at Brooklyn Teen Challenge for the last three and a half years. Uh, this verse, uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 12, in fact, the last phrase of verse 12 has always been uh, one of my favorite verses in scripture. And it has always been one of my go-to prayers from Scripture. uh, And it is always something by which I try to evaluate and check my own heart in different seasons of life. And so it is one small phrase in the Bible that is thankfully short enough... That my uh, forgetful mind can remember, (laughs) and sometimes that's helpful. Sometimes people are like, "What's the scripture that you stand on?" And they're like, "Oh, brother, it's like twelve verses long." Because we feel like if the more verses that I have, the greater the blessing, right? But for me, just being able to remember what is said is (laughs) is the blessing, right? And so I want something that's remember that's that's memorable and impactful. And so this verse has been that for me. Um, And right at the end of, and actually. uh, right at the end of verse 12, uh, King Jehoshaphat uh, is praying to God because the, uh, the nation of Israel is, is coming under attack. And, um, uh, and so he petitions to the Lord. And what he says in verse 12, oh, our God, won't you stop them? We are powerless against this mighty army that is about to attack us. And this is an amazing statement from this man because at one time in his kingship, uh, he was extremely powerful with a very vast army. Uh, but he made a couple of poor decisions and, and got to a place where he began to struggle. Um, and so by, at the, the point where the, of getting to this place in his life... You know, man to man, mano y mano. We all know what that is like to be in a position to where we felt like things were great. We felt like things were strong. uh, And then in a moment we find ourselves in a place of weakness. And for him to say those words, we are powerless against this army, is a very significant thing. But the, the portion in this little phrase that I hold on to that is near and dear to my heart is the very last phrase And it is in the NLT, we do not know what to do, but we are looking to you for help. Another translation, what I often remember is, is God, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Amen. But our eyes are on you. you see, in the midst of this attack, Jehoshaphat prays what I think is, is one of the most profound prayers because he could have asked for many things. Right When we pray prayers and when we're in distress, what do we often pray? God, if you'll deliver me out of this, I will. Or God, just give me the strength that I need. Or God, help me to be able to do this. God, give me this job and everything will be all right. God, give me that woman and everything will be all right. God, give me a million dollars and everything will be all right. I'm going to be able to make it if you just give me this. But he comes before the Lord and he doesn't ask for uh, a supernatural abilities or the greatest battle tactics. He doesn't say, God, just show me the best way to defeat them. He doesn't come before them. He doesn't just ask God, Lord, just kill them. You know, in the middle of the night, let us just wake up and them not to be there. But he laid it all upon the Lord because he was in a place that he didn't even know what to pray anymore. He didn't ask for anything. He just says, God, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. And I think that that's a very powerful principle and it's something that we see that's repeatable in the Bible. And I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but you can easily fast forward to the New Testament when Paul is speaking uh, to to the churches and he says that the Holy Spirit helps us when we don't know what to pray. Right. Even with groans and, and utterances that we don't know the Holy Spirit uh, uh, comes alongside us. And, and so when I, I put some of these things together, I begin to wonder uh, if that just isn't the case and just isn't the way that it should be on a normal basis. I have to ask myself, well, maybe the goal of prayer is not to get better at praying and knowing how and what to pray, because we often get so good at coming up with the right language. And there's probably those people that you can point out that when they're asked to pray for the meal, everybody's like, oh my gosh, we're going to be here for like 30 minutes. The food is going to be cold because they're just going to talk too long. Just say thank you and get over it. But we we get so caught up in what it is that we're supposed to say and knowing how to do it and getting our voice just right and and getting down. Oh, hallelujah. Ah, Oh, yeah, Lord Jesus. And we get so practiced at it. But maybe the point of prayer is not to get to that place where we know exactly what we're supposed to do, but it's to get to a place where we have no idea what to say. We have no idea what to do because we've got to a place of constant surrender that says, God, I have no idea. And the reason that I'm coming to you is because I have no idea. And if I had the words, they would probably be wrong. And I don't want to come to you with all of these forced things and this learned language and this learned vocabulary and actions because that doesn't impress you at all. God, I want to come before you with nothing completely empty. And if I have to just lay here and groan, I know that it's better because it's your spirit that's praying through me. God, I don't know what to do, but my eyes. Are on you. It's not about my what, how I've i packaged myself to be before the Lord. And I think that this is the most powerful position that Jehoshaphat ever found himself in. Not when he had the biggest army or the and, and the biggest military or the greatest kingdom or all of the support of all the people or allies with the wicked King Ahab or anything else. The most powerful position that he ever found himself in when it was when he was able to come before the Lord and say, "I have no idea what I am doing." I'm done. I'm, I'm. There you go. God, it's yours. I'm just going to stand back and watch. That's the most powerful place that he could have been in. And so I believe that this little summary statement is not only what God was continually asking for from the people in the nation of Israel, but I believe it's still what... God is asking for us today as we walk through the difficulties of life. And that's why it's become my prayer and it's become my mantra because when I was struggling with my issues and my addictions and and, and life coming at me, it was, God, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. When I stepped onto Bible college uh, campus literally out of a club the night before because I still hadn't got my life together and people started coming into my, my life and walking with me and discipling me. It was, God, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. When I came to New York to Long Island Teen Challenge to be an internship, to do an internship, it was, Lord, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. When I got married, when I moved to Brooklyn to be the director of the men's home and then promoted to be the, the program director, it was, God, I have no idea what to do. Do, but my eyes are on you. When we started having kids, Lord knows I had no idea what to do. But God, my eyes are on you. When we left Brooklyn to go to the church, when we came back after one of the darkest seasons of my life, when we came to Brooklyn and leadership changed and we went to Eddie Farm, Lord have mercy. We had no idea what to do. And then we came back to Brooklyn and we still didn't have any idea what to do. And then God said to go to Rockaway Beach and we still have no idea what to do. But our eyes are on you Man, it's yeah. good. and it's in traveling in this next season and heading to a position that personally i feel inadequate for my prayer is guess what god i have no idea what to do but my eyes are on you because that's what matters and that's how i get to the next place and that's how i know what i'm supposed to do and my struggles have always been when i get to the place to where i think either i don't need god or i take my eyes off of him It's been when I do the opposite of this very pray that God has given me to continually pray and lift up to him. When I do the opposite, I don't need you anymore, God. Or God, I know what to do. I've got this. You can take a break. You know, on the seventh day, how you rested. Well, God, let's call this day the seventh day. You take a rest. I'm going to take over. And it's on that day that the world completely collapses and falls apart because I have no idea what to do. But it's also in this type of prayer that we liken ourselves to Jesus. You know, Jesus was a man. He came to this earth. Philippians chapter 2, he emptied himself. He considered equality with God not something to be grasped. Right? But he emptied himself. And he he went through and he lived this life. And he he feared and he... Uh, He was anxious, and he was nervous, and sometimes he was confident, sometimes he was not, but I could just picture him in the desert when he was being tempted. God, Father, I have no idea what to do, but my eyes are on you. I could just picture him when his mom was telling him to do something about the wine, but it was not yet his time. He was like, Father, this woman is crazy. I have no idea what to do, but Lord, my eyes are on you. When a crippled man came, his first blind man came, the first lame man came, when the first leper came, and nobody expected anything to be able to be done for them... In fact, they look at Jesus like he was crazy because he wanted to associate them with them. I could just picture him saying, Father, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. When 5,000 plus people are hangry and they're looking at you, it's your fault that we're out here. You need to do something about it. I can picture him saying, Father, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. When he stayed up all night, the night before, to pick the disciples, the knuckleheads that would follow him for years and never get it, Lord, I don't know what to do when he was being persecuted every turn when he was laying on the ground sweating drops of blood in the garden of gethsemane praying the prayer lord if this cup could pass from me he's saying father i don't know what to do but my eyes are on you nevertheless not my will but your will be done you see this is the way that jesus lived his life he essentially said uh, in, in, in the book of John, I can't do anything by myself. Yeah. I do only what I see the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, that's what I'm going to do. My paraphrase. He lived that self-emptied life of total surrender. And the Son of God modeled a way of life that the sons of men have not yet fully grasped. Emptied and fully surrendered. Because we're just so quick to do things on our own. But even our best intentions come with so much baggage. We make choices that we think are so amazing and they're so great, but we didn't even understand the deep, dark motives that were hidden in our heart that influenced to make certain decisions over others. And the, the way that we seek comfortability and the way that we seek to get what we want and the way that we do things to be obedient, but we really know that we think that that's the best way to me to get over there to that place. But that's not what Jesus did. Jesus emptied himself and every single moment said, I'm just looking at you. Because there's a lot of craziness here. There's a lot of mess here. And to be honest, I look out at the world all the time and I'm like, man, there's a lot of craziness here. There's a lot of mess here. What's this world going to look like? What's society going to look like when my boys are growing up, when my boys are starting families and I can get all nervous and I can get all frustrated and I can want to go crawl in a hole or whatever the case is. But I have to stand strong and say, God, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to fix that. I don't know how to do that. But my eyes are just going to be on you. So tonight... I want to just break down some a couple of words in this phrase uh, to give you some insight about how specifically this little phrase was used in my life the last three and a half years uh, to get to the place where we are now. Is that all right? Yeah. So we're not necessarily going to exegete and bust through scripture and break down Hebrew and all that sort of stuff. I'm going to make this a little bit practical tonight because I think that it's helpful uh, on on something like this to to maybe model before you uh, a a way of thinking and a way of approaching life and a way of approaching scripture that you can take it and make it yours. You know, there's always a given meaning and there's always something that God spoke through it. But then there's always something that God speaks through it to you and that God wants you to take and make it yours, and for you to own it, to get you through your circumstances and your situation. So I want to break down this, uh, this little phrase just for a few moments. And so the very first word, very difficult word uh, to, to break down uh, that we're going to start with is the word we. <laughs> so if you're taking notes, you can write the word we. Right? We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. The first word, We. What do you think that word we has to do with? Oh, them guys, us people. you probably heard a larger word, community. Have you ever noticed that the word we is nothing more than the word me with the M flipped on its back? And it's almost as if to say that we never happens unless me is surrendered. Because I have to completely surrender myself And let go and stop the fighting, stop the striving, stop my approach to the way that I've been living life for we to happen. Because surrender is the lifeblood of community and fellowship and relationship. And what we often fail to realize and and those going through the program even often fail to realize is that surrender is not a tool that the program uses to get you to do what it wants. Surrender is the greatest tool in your tool belt that if you learn it, you will find success in life because it doesn't matter what stage of life that you are in. There will always be a choice of what you are going to surrender to. It's not a matter of if you will surrender. It's a matter of what you will surrender to. You will either surrender to things that want to destroy you or you will surrender to things that want to build you up and strengthen you and to see you Prosper. It's not a choice of if, if, it's a choice of what. And it can be your greatest asset in work. It can be your greatest asset in marriage. And for those that have been married, I better hear aloud, amen. (laughs) Amen. It'll be your greatest asset in raising children. It'll be your greatest asset uh, when you are in church and in church community. It will be your greatest asset in the friendships that you are involved in because it takes surrender to make these things work. What I've, what I've learned is that surrender is the key to success in every area of life. But I want to focus in on one of those aspects because it's one of those aspects in particular as it relates to that word we and community that this verse has that has been highlighted in this season of life for me that really stands out. And that is uh, that you cannot do it without friendship. You cannot do this. Without friendship. Friendship is the greatest thing that has happened to me at my time here at Brooklyn Teen Challenge the last three and a half years. Religious people might say, well, no, the greatest thing is God, brother. Get it? Don't get it twisted. Well, the problem with that is, well, number one, yeah, yes and amen. Number two, God uses people. And God is not upset when you are thankful for the things that God uses in your life to bless you. God is not upset when you acknowledge his wisdom and his sovereignty in choosing who you have the ability or the responsibility or the choice to be connected to in a given season so that God can do the greatest work in you. Because it's not honoring to God to praise him with your lips, but to be far from him because you have not connected to the 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 the, the, the vehicle through which God wants to bless you. Thank you. <laughs> So we're going to move past that whole part. You see, for me, friendship pulled me out of one of the darkest seasons of my life. Friendship restored my confidence. Friendship took care of me and my family. Friendship believed in me when I didn't believe in myself. Friendship challenged me to be better. And friendship happened because of surrender. Surrender. Friendship was my greatest gift. Friendship is going to be my greatest challenge to overcome in leaving this place. And it will be my most necessary resource to establish upon arrival in my new position. And I just had a conversation with one of my longest mentors that stepped into my life on that Bible College campus about 18 years ago that I'm still connected to today. And he said, Will, and I'm kind of paraphrasing because I didn't write it all down word for word when he said it. But this is basically what he said. He said, Will. You always have to have someone in your life that knows your heart, that knows the good, that knows the bad. They can cheer for you, and they can challenge you. They can tell you the truth, and they can nail you to the wall when you go the wrong way. But they can also peel you off the wall and love you back to where you should be. Amen, that's good. So you can't do that by yourself. You can't do that by yourself. Because when push comes to shove, you're not going to be honest with yourself. When push comes to shove, you're going to do what's necessary to preserve yourself. When push comes to shove, you're going to do what's necessary to give yourself the benefit of the doubt, to justify the things that you did, even when there is no real justification, because ultimately you just want to feel better about the mess that you've gotten yourself into. You need a friend, somebody that will truly be there. And truly being there means connected to the situation, knowing the depth of the situation, and choosing to be involved with you anyways. Somebody that will speak the truth in love, and somebody that will love you back to the truth. Somebody that will, that will, will, will care for you and have your best interest at mind, even to the detriment of themselves. And, a, and, a, and something out of a book that I quoted the other day it said, Each flesh and blooded friend is a gift given by Christ of particular individuals to particular individuals. In other words, no healthy spiritual friendship is ever sheer coincidence, but rather the work of providence, one through which Christ shows us his own friendship. Ideally, friendship becomes a means to Christ, a ladder to heaven. And if you don't have that in your life, you are missing out on the greatest resource that God wants to use to get you to where you need to be. And so for me, when I read this, voice, this, this this phrase and I remind myself of these words in this season, God, we don't know what to do. I'm able, probably for the first time in my life, to be grateful for the friends that God has put in my life. But ultimately, and even more so, for the best friend that I have in my life, Pastor Paul. Amen. Because God in his providence brought me to this place so that I would stop being I. So that I would stop choosing self. Because you can do that even in ministry. You can do that in thinking that you're doing it right and doing it well and doing it for the right reasons. But at some point, God has to bring you to a place where you can no longer hide. And that He can get you to that place to where I and me becomes we. And I would not be able to be where I am. And I've shared it and I've, 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 I've I told at least when we talked to the staff, this last three and a half years has been probably the greatest season of personal growth for me in my entire life. And it was not on paper the season that looked like it should be traveling from here to there and doing this and doing that. But it just goes to show if you have the right perspective that God can do the impossible and even the most impossible looking situation. But me has to become we. And if you don't have that in your life, if you are still putting up walls and if you are still walking without trust and if you're still not letting anybody in, and if you are still not pursuing the life, having and doing life with other people, then you are missing out on the full blessings of God. And I would dare say you are missing out on the discipleship process almost completely. Because you were created for community. God brought you to this place, obviously for community, because you're in a room with like six people. (laughs) And in every season of your life, you will find God when you find him in others. Community perseveres. It sees what you can't see. It opens good doors and closes bad doors. It saves you from yourself and it delivers you to Jesus. God, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. The second breakdown for this season is do not know. The first one, we. The second part, do not know. And that phrase has to do with humility. Humility is obviously something that is, we can all probably talk about, we can all probably define, we can all probably quote scriptures, we can all probably preach sermons and, and and write books on that word of all that we've heard about humility. We know that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He exalts those who bring themselves down. We know that if we confess our mouth, uh, you know, humble ourselves and pray and, and confess our sins and so on and so forth, that God will heal our land. But what I've learned about humility in this season is that it's okay not to know what to do. It's okay not to know what to do. And in fact, we've talked about it, and I've tried to say it as many times as possible in our groups, is that you can can have feelings, and you can be in circumstances, and you can think thoughts, and not have to do anything about it. The greatest lie that we've lived in our lives that has kept us stuck is because I feel something, I have to do this. I have to do that to fix it. Because I see something, I have to do this to go get it. Or because I, 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 there's something going on, I have to, I have to, I have to. And we've trained ourselves just to have to and to need to. And we be, we're so anxious to get moving and to do something. But it's okay not to know what to do. Humility assumes that it doesn't know anyway. Because it sees the position of strength, but it chooses the place of weakness. And it says, you know what, even if I think that I have all of the answers, I'm going to submit myself to the knowledge and the wisdom and the will of Christ because I know that he's still better. And it's what Paul is trying to communicate when he said, I boast all the more in my weaknesses because when I am weak, his strength is made perfect. Right, It was saying I'm choosing to to not know and it's okay not to know because God doesn't need us to know. God doesn't need our knowledge. God doesn't need our gifts and abilities. God doesn't need anything from us, but he chooses to partner with us. And my greatest successes have all happened when I wasn't in control anyways. I wasn't in control of who I married. I wasn't in control of the children that I had. I wasn't in control of the ministries that I've gone to. I wasn't even in control of going to Bible college. I didn't choose that. God sent me there. I tried everything in my power to run and do the other thing that I wanted to do in a given moment that would have continually destroyed my life. But God kept pushing me forward and God kept opening doors. I didn't have anything to do with that. Even when I was at Bible college, I struggled and I did everything that I could do not to finish. But God took me there. I didn't choose to go to New York. I tried not to go to New York. I said, God, what I need to do is go to seminary and to get more education. And I need to do this because I don't know what I'm doing. And God said, no, you're going to New York because you don't know what you're doing. And so I came to, 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 to Team Challenge. I wasn't in control of that. I wasn't in control of meeting my wife and us getting together when I'm living in New York. and she's living in Missouri and there wasn't even an ability to go on any dates. I wasn't in control of that. I wasn't even in control of choosing when we were going to get married and I certainly wasn't in control of anything that had to do with the marriage but that's okay with the wedding because I didn't need to be in control of all those things because she did a so much better job than I would have done to begin with. (laughs) But if you really begin to think and do an inventory of what your life has looked like, probably you can say with me that the things that I've controlled and the things that I've tried to do on my own have been the things that have turned into train wrecks, but it's been the things that God did anyways out of my control that turned into my greatest blessing. So why would I not be okay to say that I don't know? But sometimes I just have to stop myself from having to do and having to figure it out and having to have another place to go and another step and another achievement and another thing and another something to have to drive to. No, I can just stop and be fine not knowing, knowing that trusting that God is in control, because usually my security has come because of expectations that don't match God's demands. When I have expectations for a season, when I have expectations for what a ministry should look like or what this or that should look like, what, how a song should sound or how a message should be, I have insecurities because I have expectations that don't match God's demands. God says, what does it matter how you sing? Worship isn't great because of how you sing. I have expectations. I feel insecure. Oh, well, because I didn't say everything that I wanted to say in my message. Well, what does it mean? What does it matter what you say in a message? It matters what I say in a message, not what you say in a message. I have expectations. Oh, well, but I wanted to accomplish this, and I want to accomplish that, and, and I should be building, and I should be growing, and this whole thing should happen. But God said, well, th- maybe I didn't tell you to do that. Maybe there's something else going on in this season, and, and you're expecting things that I didn't demand, and I didn't put in place, and the reason that you feel bad is because you're not seeing what actually I am doing, and what yeah. I actually oh, am pointing man. out, and yeah. that maybe it's not about yeah. you growing a ministry, but it's about you growing oh. you. Amen. Yeah. But you just got to stop and be okay with not being okay, with not having something to do, with, with not knowing which way to go. Maybe if I don't have success, it's because I'm not seeing what God sees. I'm trying to look past what God is showing me to what's on the other side. And most of the time we do that because we want to decide for ourselves if the thing on the other side is worth going through what it is that he's taking us through. But the problem with that is, is you end, mi- end up missing the process, which means you end up missing the lessons that you need to grow through to get to the place and handle the place and the thing that he's leading you to. And so you not only miss the lessons, the preparations, and the growth, but then you also miss the thing because you don't even know what it was to begin with because your perceptions were all messed up and what you thought you saw wasn't really what was there. I'm not going to try to repeat that. <laughs> Something else I've learned is that humility waits when answers aren't provided. It surrenders to the process. Something else I've learned is that humility is active and not passive. I must choose it daily. I must practice it. It is hard work, but it promotes and it prepares me. And if I'm not actively pursuing it, then I will passively fall into pride. And when I fall into pride, pride will destroy everything in its path. And I've been there Done that, wrote the book, bought the t-shirt, sold out the concert, got all the votes, elected into office. <laughs> the, the biggest screw-up ever, there ever was. And it was because of, of, of falling into that prideful place. And I've also learned that humility recognizes the place of strength and chooses the place of weakness, as I said before. So last one. We're going to wrap this up. last word big big word that we're going to focus on first was we second was do not know and the last was eyes our eyes are on you in fact you could put that eyes on you or eyes on jesus eyes on the lord because this has to do with focus what do we focus on And being somebody that grew up playing sports and specifically grew up playing basketball, as you can tell by the way, I absolutely, utterly destroyed Eduardo. Yeah. And will always do for the rest of his life. If you don't focus on the goal, then you're going to miss the shot. Now, there are some people that have no idea what they're even shooting at, and they just throw it, and it somehow goes in, but that's not the way to get ahead of that. We won't name any names. Eduardo. Uh, But if you don't focus on the goal, then you're not gonna make the shot. And in fact, there is studies that prove even just sitting in a chair, closing your eyes, and picturing in your mind, focusing on the goal, making the shot will improve your ability to make the shot. And some of the greatest players, Larry Bird's and, and the others, got good like they did because they practiced the art of focusing their mind on the goal that they were trying to accomplish. And the same thing works, as Pastor Winston could tell you, in business, in, uh, in, in running a nonprofit, whatever it is, you focus yourself, focus your attention, focus your eyes, focus your perspective on the goal that you're trying to achieve. Shooting a boat, whatever it is that you grew up doing, You have to focus yourself on the goal or you will miss it. And I've learned in this season that if I don't stay focused, I'll get lost. And when I get lost, bad things happen. When I get lost, I tend to quit. When I get lost, I tend to give up. When I get lost, I tend to try to fill my time with things that my time doesn't deserve to be filled with. When I get lost, I begin to make mistakes. When I get lost, I begin to get confused. When I get lost, I begin to doubt. When I get lost... I get very frustrated, and when I get very frustrated, bad things begin to happen. I have to stay focused, but I've also learned that uh, even when I feel lost, I always have something to focus on. I always have something to focus on. There's not ever a season in our entire life, it doesn't matter where we are, what we're doing, how crazy it is, how, 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 how frustrating it is how broken the situation, how sinful the situation, there is always something to focus on. Your life may be falling apart. Your wife may be leaving you. You may be struggling with withdrawals or whatever the case may be. There's always something to focus on because I've learned that I always stay on track when I move towards Christ because everything he has for me is found on the path of my pursuit of him. The problem is, is when our focus is Gets changed by everything that's going on around us. And it's like something happens over here. My focus is there. but something happens over here and I begin to look over here. No, I keep my eyes focused. The thing that I always have to be focused on is the person of Jesus. Everything else, it doesn't really matter. The way that I know that I'm in the place that God wants for me is when my eyes are completely focused on him. Everything that he has for me is just found in between. It was when I began to focus my eyes on Christ. That was when I found Bible college, not in my control. And I began to focus my eyes on him, when I found, or maybe my wife found me. She did make the first call, but we won't talk about that. I love you, honey. But it was in my focus on him that I, that I came into that. It was in my focus on him that my boys happened. It was in my focus on him. You see what I'm trying to say? It wasn't in, well, my focus is on him, but this looks really exciting. No, it was my focus on Him. But everything that I did make mistakes and everything that I did, everything began to fall out is because I stopped focusing on the one thing that I had to focus on. Because the reality is, is all the other things that you can choose to focus on are never what you should focus on. There's only one thing that you should ever focus on and that's the goal at the end of of the tunnel, the goal at the end of life. If I'm shooting a basketball and I don't focus on on the back of the rim that I'm probably going to miss. So why would I not focus on the thing uh, that where my life is going and where my life is going is Jesus. Amen. My guess what? My life is not going to heaven. My, that might confuse you, but that's not where my life is going. My life is not going for a reward. My life is not going for a blessing. My life is not going for a promotion. My life is not going for anything else because when I get to the end of this life and God calls me home, my reward will be Jesus. My life will be found in Jesus. It is Jesus where I'm going. So if I just keep my eyes focused on the one thing, one thing, that's all we have to focus on and all we need to focus on and all we should focus on. And so the quicker that we can get that in our minds, if it's not Jesus, it's not it. It's not the job. It's not the, the house. It's not the money. It's not the, 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 the relationship. It's not all of the other things that can choose to pull our attention away. It's Jesus. And most of the time, it's easier to get through your circumstance when you're focused on him because you don't even really often see, you know, just like you're climbing a mountain. They tell you not to look down. You don't look down. You don't know what's underneath you. You keep your eyes on Jesus and stop looking around. You don't even know what's underneath you. You don't even know the valley that he's taking you through. Well, because my eyes are on him and I'm going to him anyways, and this is the way to get to him. And if this is the way to get to him, then this is the best possible route that I can take. So it doesn't matter what's done underneath me. It doesn't matter how hot it is down there. It doesn't matter if there's blow, broken glass down there. It doesn't matter if there's nothing down there at all. If I don't look down there, but I look at him, then I'm going to get where I'm supposed to go. And so it's all about focus. If you draw a straight line in between you and Jesus, you'll see the right things fitting into your life perfectly. And so how do you get where you're supposed to go? Look at him. See him. Find him. Fix your gaze upon him. Turn off everything else, every other voice that's not his because when you're looking at him, even when it's hard to hear because the world gets so loud, you'll see his lips moving, calling your name, saying, this is the way. Walk in it. Keep coming. I'm here for you. I'm cheering you on. I'm rooting for you. Here's some grace to get through that situation. Come on. Keep walking. Take that next step. Don't be worried. Don't look over there. Don't look over. Don't look down. Come on. Right here. We're going to get through this. It's that focusing on the end. Amen. And, Mayor, if you want to come. Amen. So, I gave you this sheet Psalm 42. And I made it small enough you can tuck it in your Bible and you can hold on to it. You're welcome. You may be an individual that gets stuck on translations that's that's fine you can go read this and whatever translation you want to read it in I've studied a lot of them and uh, and I chose this one because I think this one is amazing it's accurate and it says it in a way that is that we can understand and it's also challenging for us to read this is a passion translation And he entitled this, Psalm 42, A Cry for Revival. And the reason I gave you this is so that you can hold on to this because I wanted to leave you with something other than hopefully a phrase that you could pray. God, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. So when you feel like leaving, God, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. When you get a bad phone call that you didn't want to hear, God, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. But I want you to hold on to this. I want you to read through it. I want you to pray over it. Commit, maybe for the next week, the next month, whatever it is. to to sit and read this and to let the Lord speak to you through it. And I can say a lot of things about this psalm and I may say a couple of things but what I really want to, the question that I really want to ask you is at what point does this psalm, when we read it, become uncomfortable? You know and I'm going to ask you at the end of this, what is God saying to you right now in this moment? Everything else aside about right now in here. And so I think as we read through this, there's probably going to be something in here and I'm going to pray, God, as we read this, make make us uncomfortable. Because I've learned, another thing that I've learned is is that the best place to find God is in the things that make me uncomfortable the time the things that make me uncomfortable are God urging me and trying to do something in my life. He's asking me to change. He's asking me to grow and growing becoming strong giving things up is uncomfortable but God please help us because there's different aspects to this and there's and where you feel uncomfortable says something and I believe it's at that place that God wants to meet you verse one I long to drink of you Oh God, drinking deeply from the streams of pleasures flowing from your presence. My longings overwhelm me for more of you. My soul thirsts, pants and longs for the living God. I want to come and see the face of God. Day and night, my tears keep falling and my heart keeps crying for your help while my enemies mock over me and over saying where is this God of yours why doesn't he help you so I speak over my heartbroken soul take courage remember when you used to be right out front leading the procession of praise when the great crowd of worshipers gathered to go into the presence of the Lord you shouted with joy as the sound of passionate celebration filled the air and the joyous multitude of lovers honored the festival of the Lord notice that's not in a condemning way that's in a reminding way like man that's in you Remember when we did that? Remember that was so great? That's what he's saying. I spoke it over my heartbroken soul. Verse five, so then my soul, why would you be depressed? Why would you sink into despair? Just keep hoping and waiting on God, your savior, savior for no matter what, I will sing praise, sing with praise for living before his face is my saving grace. But here I am, depressed and downcast. Yet I will still remember you as I ponder the place where your glory streams down from the mighty mountaintops, lofty and majestic, the mountains of your awesome presence. My deep need calls out to the deep kindness of your love. Your waterfall of weeping sent waves of sorrow over my soul, carrying me away, cascading over me like a thundering cataract. Yet all day long, God's promises of love pour over me. Through the night, I sing his songs for my prayer to God has become my life. I will say to God, you are my mountain of strength. How could you forget me? Why must I suffer this vile oppression of my enemies? These heartless tormentors who are out to kill me, their wounding words, Pierce my heart over and over while they say, where is this God of yours? So I say to my soul, don't be discouraged. Don't be disturbed. For I know my God will break through for me. Then I'll have plenty of reasons to praise him all over again. Yes, living before his face is my saving grace. Why I asked you at what point does this song become uncomfortable because there's there's many things there's many ways that it can be is it the language you know when we struggle with intimacy when we hear those words you know about the pleasures and drinking deeply of God and, and being before his face when we struggle with intimacy when we struggle with with those things it can become very uncomfortable like oh, I don't know how that uh, we give we, me we clam up and we put walls up because we don't like it we're men and we were drug addicts and we're tough and we don't want anybody to know that we're soft. But maybe it's at that place that God wants to do the greatest work. Maybe it's at the place of intimacy that God wants to reveal himself and open you up so that you can stop all that nonsense and keep running to him and coming to him and be nearer to him and nearer to him because living before his face is your saving grace. Amen. Maybe you were reading the part about the enemies attacking you and you feel frustrated and you feel beat down and you feel discouraged. And that's fine. You feel uncomfortable because God wants to meet you in that place. And God wants to encourage you. And God wants you, even maybe more importantly, to speak over your heartbroken soul to take courage. And one thing you have to remember is that you will never stop believing lies that you keep speaking. And so if you want to stop believing it, stop speaking it. If you want to stop believing what the enemy is saying, stop saying it to yourself. Stop repeating it. Stop letting it play like a broken record in your mind. Start saying something else. Change the tune. Change the song. Sing something else. And that's why it's important for God to put a new song in your heart because it destroys the lives of the enemy and what was done in the past. You can latch on to what God wants to do in the future. But maybe it's not even that. Maybe it's not the people coming after you. Maybe it's that you feel distant from God. And so it it resounds in your mind where is this God of yours and you're like man I don't even know God wants to meet you in that place and God wants to give you a vision about how near he's been all along God wants to give you a vision about how close that he is to you God wants to reveal himself to you in a new way here's some things to focus on in verse 1 his presence Streams and pleasures flowing from his presence. You don't know what to focus on? Try focusing on that. Verse 2 focus on calling out in times of trouble. In fact, he says, I keep calling out in times of trouble. I commit myself not to stop. And if I have to focus myself in this season, the way I focus on the Lord is I'm going to call out and I'm going to call out and I'm going to call out and I'm not going to stop and I'm going to keep calling out. I'm going to keep calling out. Then that's what you focus on in that season because it's on focusing on him in that way that's going to get you through. Verse three, to watch your words. As I said before, you can't keep speaking the lies over yourself. You have to change the words. So if you have to focus on changing the words and and to, to what the Lord is saying over, you verse four I'm going to focus on feeding my hope and waiting for him hope is is a powerful tool in the arsenal of the believer but if you notice hope is 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 found not in experiencing the thing that you're looking for but waiting for the thing that you're looking for and so again just because you feel something doesn't mean you have to do something about it no you feed the hope you feed yourself. You Whatever you feed is going to grow. So I feed that hope, and I feed that hope, and I feed that hope, and I wait for God. I don't try to abandon and do my own thing. In verse 5, what can I focus on? Well, I focus on facts and not feelings. I focus on the fact that the Lord is for me. I focus on the fact that He is a mighty tower. I focus on the fact that, that I do uh, experience His presence and not on my feelings. In verse 6, I focus on... On his love, his, his uh, uh, glorious love. And and, and and my deep calls out to the kindness of your love. In verse 7, I focus on prayer. He says, my prayer to God has become my life. In verse 8, I focus on being honest with God. Because sometimes I just have to stop playing games. And if I'm going to be honest with nobody else, I have to start first by being honest with God. Because he knows anyway. So what kind of game are we playing? Stop the nonsense, focus, say, you know what, the thing that I'm going to do and accomplish right now is for the first time in my life, I'm going to be honest with God and I'm pissed off about something that happened. But you know what, God, I don't know what to do about it, but my eyes are on you. And that's how God gets you through the thing. But you got to stop playing games. So I'm going to focus my, my attention on just being honest with God and saying what needs to be said and getting it out of my system. Verse 9, I'm going to focus on seeing past the threats and having greater vision because the reality is is the only thing that the enemy can do to you is steal your attention. By all of the other things that are going on, what's below, what's to the side, what's above, and what's going here, what's behind, but Jesus says no see past the threats see past what the enemy is doing what the enemy is saying because it's not about the enemy it's about seeing Christ on the other side and verse 10 what can I focus on? I can focus on the fact that no matter what happens I'm going to praise through it why? because see, seeing his face is my saving grace and uh, I took a lot of time tonight and I did that on purpose because this is the last time <laughs> that I'm talking so it doesn't matter how long we're here okay. <laughs> So what is God saying to you right now? In this place, in this moment? That's all that matters. I don't have a specific call or response or thing. As always, what is God saying to you right now?